What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guests today are Jason Yanowitz and Michael Ippolito, the co-founders of BlockWorks. While starting BlockWorks, Jason and Michael were sharing a single room in New York City to save money. Today, they are leading a profitable crypto media company recently valued at $135 million. In this episode, they take us behind the scenes of their journey. We cover the struggle of the early days, get their views on the crypto ecosystem, and dive into each of the three segments of their business, digital media, events, and SaaS. BlockWorks is a wonderful example of a thoughtfully built media company, and this episode is filled with insightful nuggets about media business models, the tension between companies and creators, betting on niches, and so much more. Please enjoy my conversation with Jason and Michael from BlockWorks. Jason and Michael, thank you guys for joining me. I'm really excited to do this one. Thanks for having us, Eric. Appreciate it. Thanks. Same. So following your career and getting to know you a little bit, you two are kind of the kings of hustle, building stuff before it exists, launching events before you even have institutional customers, approaching Pomp and telling him to launch a podcast when you know nothing about podcasting. I thought a place to start, and obviously the business has evolved massively since those early days, but share kind of those early days of this background you have of the, uh, not fake it till you make it exactly, but just this hustle and build a business and kind of sell it before you've built it. I think this word hustle is funny because I always think of like the Gary V hustle porn, like the hustle on Instagram type of stuff from like 2015 to 2018 days. But our stuff was about as bootstrapped, I think, as you can get in the early days, not because we purposefully wanted it to be that way, but because we truly didn't know another way. I mean, Mike and I were both literally living not only in the same apartment, but we were not making enough money to get our own rooms. So we were literally sharing a bedroom. And I'm embarrassed to share that story. Neither of us would budge on the size of the bed. So we pushed our two queen beds into the same bedroom and we're literally like two feet apart. So we got pretty close in those days. I mean, when we started BlockWorks, we didn't know what it really meant to go raise a bunch of venture money. And we didn't really understand what that game was. The way that we did everything in the beginning was just by working our ass off. And I think that's probably what you mean by the hustle stuff. And when we started BlockWorks, we had a full-time job. We would wake up early in the morning, like 4 or 5 a.m. And for example, to sell tickets to our first event ever, 
we would wake up at like 5 a.m. and get on LinkedIn and send 500 messages. 10% of them would respond. You'd get 50 people to respond. 10% of them buy tickets. You have five people buying tickets and boom, call it a day. Still to this day, every once in a while, I'll DM someone on LinkedIn or they'll DM me and I'll see the last message was me asking them to come to this event in 2018. <laughs> you know, it's five years later. I love that. Were you guys just always wired with like the anti-rejection gene? Some people really have a hard time with that. They're so afraid of doing that. Other people, it just comes natural to them. And I find for others, they want their business to succeed so much, they're just willing to do anything. I think there's something that you don't understand until you've started a company, which is your entire reputation sits inside of the success of this company, at least in the early days. So when Mike and I launched Blockworks, I think most of our friends and family and pretty much everyone was like, patting us on the shoulder. Like, okay, that's cute, kids. Company I love was like, when this doesn't work out, like you can come back to us. And I think like your entire reputation relies on this company. And I think that just like we can't fail here. Think about how this sounded to an outsider is this was early 2018. Like we were leaving our jobs. Like Mike was working in consulting. I was working in tech. We were leaving to go launch a blockchain and crypto events company. Like that just didn't make any sense to anybody. And these weren't events, by the way. These weren't big conferences. These were 6 to 10 p.m. happy hours that we had hosted twice. One of them had made money. One of them had lost money. So we didn't really have much experience under our belts. And so I think people thought we were a little crazy. So like, I think the rejection just comes from like, we couldn't fail. I think one of the other things that everyone tells you not to do this, but it's impossible to not do it. You tie your entire identity up in the success of the company that you're making. And the thing that makes that very difficult is in a startup, especially in the early days, you have to make life or death or bet the kitchen sink decisions on a somewhat regular basis. So the only thing I could compare it to is it's almost a silly analogy, but imagine you are going to a roulette table in Vegas and you roll black and you just keep rolling black day in and day out. And then some of your friends like come and start to watch you and they're like, hey, you're really good at rolling on black and your whole reputation and you feel like your friends are watching you and just rolling black and black and black and the stakes get larger and larger and larger. It's a weird feeling, but I agree. Part of it's a maybe a resistance to rejection, but part of it is the ability to just keep betting it all on a somewhat regular basis. That was at least a challenge, I think. I know the company has evolved over time, but I'm curious from those early days where you had this view of we want to start a company together and it's going to be this crypto events, what was the conviction bet? Was it on the asset class? Was it on the fact that these are interesting people and we need to bring them together? Was it that there was an unmet need? Where did that conviction come from when I'm sure there had to be periods of darkness and doubt that this wasn't a good idea? We got a lot of things wrong, but the thing that we got right was that crypto was eventually going to be orders of magnitude bigger than it was back then. And that if that happened, the number of people and specifically the number of investors who came into the industry would also grow exponentially. And those investors were just going to demand a much better source of information. So if you look at when we started the company, there were probably two media companies, Coindesk and Cointelegraph. There was one podcast, Laura Shins. All the information was really siloed on Reddit and Twitter. And our bet was that the number of institutions and people came into the industry, they weren't going to learn about this new and emerging asset class from people named Crypto Panda. They needed a reliable, trustworthy source of information, data, analytics, et cetera. That was really the bet that we took. We're going to kind of go to the more current, then we're going to go backwards, where you guys have recently done a raise. It's a big number, which you're happy to share. 
How did you transition from this bootstrap view? And it's not so much the whole company, but more the cultural difference that was that you guys have done all this on your own and really drove yourself to be such independent, like we're just going to figure it out and make it work to then moving to the venture side at this stage. To go into some of the reasons for why we decided to do this five years later, is kind of two reasons. For the longest time, we've been sort of a pure play media company. You can almost think of that as being like a funnel. You have ways that you reach people at the top that are very broad, and maybe that's our podcasts or our website. And then going down, you maybe have something like the newsletter, and at the bottom, you have conferences. But one of the things that we started to build over the last year at BlockWorks is a research and analytics product. And for that, you need analysts and you need engineers. And when you look at the financing model of something that looks a little bit more like a SaaS product versus a media product, Jason and I sort of had a sit down and said, this we might actually need a different financing model for. The other thing that went into the decision was sort of a timing thing. And we actually ended up having a great year in 2022. We're, I think, in some ways lucky, but in some ways, I think we executed pretty well. We had the opportunity to raise at a time when some of our competitors were struggling a little bit. So we saw this as an opportunity to pole vault, so to speak. That was kind of the reason, but we're super lucky to be partnering with the investors that we are. And there was a lot of discussion that went into it. And one of the things that I think attracted Jason and I is a lot of the time in VC, it's like, hey, raise now. So in 12 months, you can go raise at a much larger valuation. You can get on this, what we internally call the VC hamster wheel. And 10T, who led our investment, they didn't necessarily have that way of thinking. They were like, you can take this money and make it last. And I don't think we really had to change our culture that much. And that was a really appealing part of the deal. Eric, I think there's something um, that we've always thought that I think maybe is different than how a lot of media operators think, which is like, there's something interesting happening outside of crypto right now, where all the digital media brands that raised a boatload of venture money in like the 2007 era, BuzzFeed, Vice, Vox, Gawker blew up a little while ago. They're all blowing up. One of the reasons that they are blowing up is because a media company in one word is just trust. You are building a community that trusts your brand enough to receive all of the information that they get on a daily basis from that brand. That's the one word I would put of what is a media company. And when you raise a boatload of venture money to go scale a media company, you do is you try to use money to buy trust. And that doesn't work. And that's what BuzzFeed and Vice and Vox and all of them tried to do it was always going to blow up. It just took like 15 years or 10 years to blow up because they had so much money that, you know, some of them raised like $400 million. So that's the first thing that we really didn't want to do. We didn't want to try to use money to buy trust. And then the second thing is, if you look at the most successful media companies, they have a product that sits at the bottom of the funnel. And that's the reason why you see actually a lot of the acquisitions that have happened semi-recently, like JP Morgan buying infatuation. The reason they did that is to use infatuation to drive signups to the Chase Sapphire preferred credit card or Barstool Sports with a betting product at the bottom of the funnel or HubSpot buying the hustle to drive subscriptions for HubSpot at the bottom of the hustle funnel or Politico having Politico Pro at the bottom or Bloomberg. Those are the successful media companies. And so for us, I think we were like, let's slowly build a community, an audience and not try to throw money at it. And then once we have this audience, we can drive that audience into the research platform and data platform. And it took five years to get there, but now that's what we're doing. I want to break the businesses of BlockWorks into kind of four verticals. Tell me if these are the right ones, but there's the newsletter, podcast, events, and now this research and analytics platform. Is that a fair way to kind of structure it? I think it's fair. We bucket it into three, actually, which is just all things digital media. There's like newsletters, 
podcasts, webinars, our website, if we ever sell like digital space on the website, like that's all digital for us. Then we have conferences and then we have the subscription side of the business, which is this research, data, analytics, and governance platform. Okay. Let's start with the digital media stuff. And obviously I have a huge curiosity of podcasting because I have no idea what I'm doing and just kind of fell back afterwards into doing this. Doing a pretty good job of it. You look like you do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can just go on YouTube and figure out how to buy this stuff. So when you think about podcasting as a media, I'm curious to think about you guys start shows, you've started more of the shows than you have today. How do you think about new idea generation, giving a show a chance? What does success look like in that we've got an idea, let's throw it out there phase? Yeah, I can take a first whack at it. The way that we think about it is starting with the audience. And in general, the shows that have been successful in finance or in crypto, they tend to be around subcultures. And these subcultures typically have a unique view of the world. And to be honest, for a financial podcast, they will often have like an asset that this community congregates around. What I would point you to is you could boil most financial podcasts today down to people that like gold or bonds. Sometimes the gold people, the content that really resonates is a little bit more doomery, so to speak. And people like to rag on the Fed and that sort of thing. But there are really great examples of this in crypto as well like what Bitcoin did and the podcasts, I think, occupy a certain niche. I would say Bankless is probably one of the great success stories in terms of identifying a subculture that was very different. And I think there are plenty of other subcultures like that within crypto and finance that are generally not explored, or they're not told through the lens that those communities think about the world. So that's how you kind of start. And then the other thing too is you'll notice a lot of our shows have co-hosts. One of the reasons why people keep coming back to podcasts, I think it's almost like daytime radio, but a little bit more knowledge filled. People often come back because they like the hosts and they feel connected to them. And if there's two hosts that banter back and forth, that's a really powerful connection. So sometimes we'll think about shows, not necessarily from the perspective of, hey, there's this subculture or perspective that isn't being addressed, but would these two people just create magic together? And when you have one of those ideas, let's just say you think that either it's a two-host show and it has that chemistry and you like it, give me an example of when you know it's just not working with your audience and how do you decide it's time to end it and put resources elsewhere? And people aren't listening to it. Yeah, I wish I could tell you there's like a cutoff point or something like that, but it's very easy to tell when a show is working, obviously. But if it's not, sometimes you have to have a little bit of a thesis. Most shows don't work immediately overnight. But Frank, there's a little bit of a subjective judge internally from BlockWorks and say, hey, maybe this isn't resonating right now, but give it six months or nine months and have a, like, a perspective on if the content is good or not. And frankly, I think that's one of the things that BlockWorks is good at is being like, yeah, even if it's not working right now, we are confident that this is good content. So we're going to stick with it. Within the content of BlockWorks, there's the news content that needs to be very factual, like fact-based, hard-driven news. And then there's the almost like opinionated what's going to happen, more talking. And that's like podcasts and kind of newsletters too. Part of the job of Mike, for example, who runs the content side of the business and like the podcast host is not only to know what's happening now, but have a thesis on what the industry is going to look like a year from now. And I would say we've gotten that very right over the years. So that might be in 2018, talking about the rise of like the institutional platforms. And sure enough, in 2018, we we're talking about that. 2019, you get like, the Falcon X's and Tagomi's and those institutional players. Or 2019, maybe talking about DeFi. And then in 2020, you get DeFi Summer. If you actually look at our podcasts, 
I don't think, Mike, we've ever shut down a podcast that we've launched internally where it's our own show. The two models with our shows, Eric, the way that we bootstrap the network when we had zero dollars is we would go find these big influencers like Pomp, for example, and we'd say, hey, we'll go build your show for you. We do like a 50-50 rev share or whatever it was. We'll do all the work. You sit in front of a mic, bada bing, bada boom. We make some money, but like you have the content. Really good model to make money. Really bad model for owning the IP and the content. So it took a couple of years, but like we scaled off of that model, moved away from those. And then now we just build our own in-house IP. I was excited to see Avi and Jonah's new podcast, 1000X. That's a new under your brand. That's an internal podcast or is that a partnership? It's a partnership, but it's block show. This is actually a good example of maybe how we would test a show. So that show is totally separate branding. It's called 1000X, but it doesn't actually have its own podcast feed. It goes live only on the Empire podcast feed once every two weeks, I think it is. If people love that show, which they're loving the show right now, because it serves this kind of like niche community of like power crypto traders, that's when like a decision can be made. Should we create a whole separate show here? Does this deserve its own show? And then I think the other thing that's important to talk about too is like, just from a business model perspective, it's very important to make sure that these things are cash flow positive sooner rather than later. And how do you handle that? When you guys approach sponsorships, I'm always curious about this and I've gotten to know the Barstool team a little bit, like a media company versus like a show and content. Are you negotiating on behalf of all of your shows and saying, this is the BlockWorks network? Or are you doing kind of show by show if somebody wants a specific type of niche community? The way that we treat sponsorships is more of like, we oftentimes try to like almost put together big marketing campaigns for folks. So if we go to like a DeFi protocol that needs powered on-chain users, we're probably gonna not talk to like the Web2 crowd who's interested in NFTs. We're gonna try to get them in front of the hardcore on-chain power users. And like, because we have all these channels, newsletters, podcasts, website, social, conferences, research, we can kind of plug and play and figure out what the best channel would be for their brand. So on the top of sponsorships, I want to move to economics. Can you help me understand? So we're in podcasts, but digital media in general, before we go to events, because I kind of want to dive into that separately. So with podcasts, Jason kind of talked about it. There was an early model of a 50-50 revenue share between like the host and us, the content creator. We do all the stuff and then we'll see what the sponsor gives and, and then split it. How do the economics work between a newsletter, a podcast, a webinar, to the extent that you can share. I can take a first stab at this and maybe I'd compare the traditional digital media model with maybe why I think something like niche media is a really good model. So like when CNN goes out to sell ads, they're selling on what's called a CPM, which is a cost per milli, where you're getting a dollar rate per thousand people. So their CPM rate on their website, for example, might be like a $2 CPM or $3 CPM, which means an advertiser is going to pay CNN $3 for every thousand people that see their ad. That is a race to the bottom and is one of the reasons why digital media struggled so much is because they all tried to go basically, maybe some of them started with niche media, but when they got past that, it's a race to the bottom with CPM. For Blockworks, we have an audience that you can't reach anywhere else. You can't type into your Facebook ad manager let me reach a portfolio manager at a billion dollar hedge fund who's got 5% allocation to ETH and 2% allocation to Bitcoin. Let me reach that person. And also, what is that person worth to you, the advertiser, right? If you're Coinbase institutional and you're trying to reach that person, you might only need to get in front of like 30 of those people. And you're willing to pay 
a big chunk of change to get in front of those people. So we don't sell anything based on like the CPM model. We more approach it with like three month or six month or 12 month partnerships with sponsors. Does that answer the question? It does. And it kind of leads into the next view. Jared Dicker wrote a great essay about the media landscape. It takes that. So we have what I'll call traditional media. And then I really like your definition of like niche media, a specific audience. Jared pushed this idea really far of the notion of record labels, individual contributors, that there's so many people that now have a Substack or they have a podcast. Like the amount of content creation has led to this place of like, well, do media companies need to exist? And is their economic model going to change? And I think Jared was more comparing that to the traditional media companies. Like, you just owning distribution and thinking that the Barry Weisses are just going to stay here and take what you give them, that's not going to work. Now, niche media might be actually kind of an interesting point that he wasn't addressing, but I'm curious to get your take on this individual content creator. Anyone with an iPhone can create media now. I forget the piece because I haven't read it in a couple of years, but I think I remember the talent records piece. He's spot on that people follow people. People don't follow brands. People want to hear from people. We really... I think in a way subscribe to that as well. Like we really do what we can to like put our podcast hosts and our reporters and our journalists and like our newsletter writers on a pedestal and like promote them and stuff. Where I think he's wrong is that, um, or maybe not wrong, but maybe didn't take into consideration is this is not a new thing. It's not like Substack changed this model. This has been happening forever. People didn't watch CBS. They watched Walter Cronkite. And like people didn't tune into ESPN for ESPN. They tuned in for Chris Berman and Stuart Scott or... Barstool. It wasn't Barstool. It was Dave Portnoy or Gimlet. It was Alex Bloomberg's like original podcast. People don't read the Bloomberg newsletter. They read Matt Levine. So in that sense, like I really subscribe to that model. What I would say to Jared is totally agree, but this has been happening for 70 years. I think Jason said it the best in the beginning. If you're in the business of media, you're in the business of building trust. And there's a quote that's always resonated with me, which is business is just the process of bundling and unbundling. And what you're looking at right now is Substack and social media has helped unbundle creators from their brands. But now you're starting to see Substackers offer like a joint rate, like get both of our Substacks for this one price. And I think the reason behind that is there's a really intense power law when it comes to content creation, where 90% of the views come from a very small subset of creators. And so for like the pomps of the world, who not only has the ability to create content that tons of people want to see, but also execute on all of the business stuff that you ultimately need to power a media company that generates a whole bunch of money. I think those people will ultimately go ahead and do that. But I think for the vast majority of creators, maybe they don't want to like grind and do all the other stuff. Like most content creators that we work with, they just want to create content. And oftentimes, You'll kind of go do your Substack for a year and you're full of like piss and vinegar and you're like, I'm like, do my own thing. And like, no one can tell me what to do. But then it's like, I got to like sell sponsorships on this thing. And I got to worry about like marketing. This isn't what I want to do at all. And by the way, I'm like clickety clacking here by myself until midnight every night. I honestly think we're probably going to go through a process of rebundling a little bit with a slight definition, change in the definition of terms and value prop. I think Barstool is a great example of a media company in the modern day where they've adapted to the new distribution channels, which are social, but they still have a unified brand and do a good job of lifting individual contributors' voices. I want to go deeper in that idea because you started off with the trust part, which I get. And I'm curious both on the 
trust and the value accrual part of that. So we can take either one in order. But like to your point, you trust Walter Cronkite, maybe not CBS. And so you trust Jason and listening to you. But then the question is, how do you manage that you're trying to then support individual contributors, but they represent the brand? And then the other side, how does that value accrual work where, yes, in your point, Michael, that there's a trade-off there of, I want to just create content. But then how do you think about the shift in value accrual between the brand, like a CBS Walter Cronkite back in the day, and then today in a niche media brand? It's all about leverage at the end of the day, isn't it? Eventually, you figure out how much value is the brand giving to you. So for instance, if you're a reporter and got no name or background, and suddenly if you're writing reports for Bloomberg that tens of thousands of people are reading, then honestly, that's like the Bloomberg brand leaking value to you. And then maybe it flips at a certain point. So it's all kind of just a game of leverage and push and pull and the Tucker Carlson's of the world that command tens or hundreds of millions of views, like they'll maybe do their own thing. I honestly think, like Jason said, this is a game that's just been going on forever. And I generally think the fragmentation of media is like way overstated. But it does give really interesting new models for creators that do want to do all the business stuff on their own. I said before, but Pomp is like the perfect example of that. He's a great creator, but he's also just a really savvy, smart guy, investor too. So I think it makes sense for him. One of our jobs, Eric, is getting out of our own way, which will allow the company to scale. We need to pass on whatever trust that people have built in us onto other people at the company. You know what would be the dream for us? Is having a reporter get 250,000 followers and be able to come to us in a year or something or two years and be like, I demand much higher value. And we're like, absolutely, you do. Or a podcast host gets 100 million downloads on their show and they're like, I want to see some of the success of this show. And we're like, absolutely, you should. That's a dream scenario, I think. Yeah, and find that balance. Let's move to events because it's something that I've been thinking about more recently. I feel like anyone in crypto over the past three years or longer just goes to way too many conferences and it can be exhausting at times. I ask sometimes like, are there like just professional conference goers? But on the event side, I'm super fascinated with that model. You went from events to permissionless, this large conference. Talk about the evolution of what you learn from those smaller events to do the big conference and how you think about that as both its value to Blockworks as well as its economics as a business different from the digital media side. One of the takeaways that we learned actually very early on, in the beginning, our events used to be general. And the thinking was, instead of taking a bet on one specific thing, do a little bit of everything so we can appeal to a broader group. And that was the wrong instinct. We actually found that out pretty quickly from sponsors because the idea was like, hey, I'm trying to, like Jason mentioned, if you're Ave Dal, you only care about on-chain power users. That's who you ultimately want in the room. And it's not valuable. It's actually much less valuable because from a marketer's perspective or an attendee's perspective that's trying to get a very specific experience, it actually like waters it down and dilutes the value proposition. That's why we have our two different brands to like be way overly reductive. In crypto, there are kind of like two groups. There's the t-shirts, which is the devs and the crypto natives and the builders and the people that are like in it for the revolution, baby, and trying to change the world. And they want a very specific vibe and type of content and experience. And then there are like the suits, which is this is just another asset class. And you can fit this into your portfolio allocation. And I think a lesson that we had to learn early on was it's not actually additive 
to get those two groups of people in a room. Oftentimes they really just want to hear the type of content that they want to hear. And they don't want it watered down by like, well, let me like explain the one-on-one to you. It's a weird, maybe counterintuitive idea that to go big, you actually need to go more specific and like really nail down the type of experience that you want to deliver and the type of people that you want in the room. Not just with conferences, by the way, with all content in general, inside of BlockWorks, when in doubt, we always go more niche. And it sometimes takes longer to get big. But when you get big, you can own that niche and you're basically betting on niches. I think that's even more interesting than the trust. I buy the trust idea that you know that's what happened with some of the other companies. But the niche thing is a really interesting takeaway. I have permissionless, even just a location, because I was like trying to listen to One River and I was like on one side of the building with the suits. And then I ran to go do ETH merge with the t shirt. So maybe just because I'm a little bit weird and <laughs> not in your demographic that I wanted to do both. But I was like, holy shit, this is like a whole nother place over there I've got to get to. It was so different. Like everyone has laptops and backpacks in the t shirt room, completely different than the finance presentation I was in. So I didn't really think about that until you just made that point. I was actually purposely separating those groups because they are wildly different, even though I happen to like both. I think one other thing that we've done that most other people have gone the completely opposite way of is when in doubt, go niche, but also when in doubt, go deeper. And if you look at a lot of other media companies, there's a very natural reaction to be like, okay, we need to grow. What should we do? Oh, one-on-one level content. Someone will type in, what is Bitcoin on Google? And they'll hit our page and like, we need to onboard more people into crypto. Let's create like a one-on-one level podcast. I've seen so many media companies do that. And we go the opposite direction. Mike just finished recording an amazing season of one of the podcasts we have called Bell Curve. It is now the definitive place to go if you want to learn about MEV. How many people in this world care about MEV right now? Sub 5,000 probably. But as MEV becomes a more and more important topic to Ethereum and to crypto in general, we will be seen as the definitive experts in that space. I thought, when in doubt, go more niche. I'm going to take that. Back on the event planning and just how you envision this big event and bringing it all together. One thing that struck me recently in the past couple of weeks is I was thinking about hotels as a business model and the difference between a four-star and a five-star hotel are different. But the difference between five-star hotels, like it's hard to get it much better for a lot of people. But events really can have like one star, five star, there could be 10 star. I mean, the events can be over the top and how they can bring people together, the service level, the experience of bringing those people together. And I was curious to get your thoughts on the event as a business model and how you think about where you want to position that. The one big difference I'd say with hotels and events is there's only one goal for every hotel in this world, which is the bottom line. There are many, many, many goals for events. I don't know the events you're talking about, but like a seven-star event or a 10-star event, the goal might not be to make money. It might be like a loss leader that drives into your, let's say you're a fund. You might spend a boatload of money bringing the world's best LPs to an event, and it's a 10-star event, and you lose a bunch of money, but then you get all the LPs to invest in your fund. So goals can be different. And I think that's one thing that we've had to balance at BlockWorks. One of the ways that we competed in the beginning on our conferences, all we did higher quality. Everyone else was doing hotel events. We said, we're not doing any hotel events. Mike was talking about these bet the farm moments. We bet the entire company and rented out Cipriani in New York. We had no business renting out Cipriani. We had like six employees. I think the (laughs) rental cost was more money than we had in the bank. And we bet the entire company and rented out Cipriani. It was actually better than that. We just hired this woman who was our COO, Julie. She was like, I'm going to create a budget day one. It was like big event that we were going to do. We're like, great. And she showed us a number for the budget. 
that was twice what we had done in revenue for the entire previous year. But Jason and I were too afraid to say no. So we're like, sounds good. And then privately, we were like, we better sell this event. <laughs> we, better, we better sell it, baby. We came pretty damn close not to, but we made it. That is one thing that we did in the early days to differentiate is when we didn't have the network, we didn't have the firepower. At that time, Coindesk was the 800-pound gorilla. They maybe had 150 employees. We maybe had five. We just did things nicer than them. Like we had people walking around in like tuxes, giving out little past apps and stuff. And like we had no business doing that, but it made the event very memorable. And I think we still try to keep a lot of that to this day, but also, you know, got to hit the bottom line. So when you run an event, the Permi NFT, like you definitely thought about pricing structure, which I think is interesting. I was listening to an old interview with you and Pomp and how like literally you sent up 11 emails and the 12th was like, I will meet with you or whatever it was if you stop emailing me and your emails are like, there's discounts. Like you are constantly in front of people, which I think is great. Thinking about how you guys market and promote your events, the pricing structure, how did you think about that in a creative way that's a bit different than maybe your average conference? Every conference usually sells tickets in the same way where they sell a bunch of tickets up front. And then for several months, they don't sell a single ticket. And then there's a mad dash at the end and everyone's super anxious. And in the last 30 days, they sell all their tickets. So every conference in the world works. We were trying to avoid that. And so for last year's permissionless, which was the first permissionless, we looked at actually non-conferences. We looked at Supreme, for example. We were like, what if we drop tickets like Supreme drops clothes or just like exclusive brands drop clothes? What we did is actually every two weeks, we dropped a new batch of tickets. And every two weeks, the price of those tickets increased 15%. We would literally have people creating calendar invites on their calendar for when the next batch of permissionless tickets was going to drop because people got conditioned to know that they would sell out. Now, a lot of other folks have copied that model. So it doesn't work as well this year, but now we have to create a new ticket. So I think we're always trying to think of something different there. I think that was a good ticketing model that worked very well last year. Eric, you're asking about different models in media and how media is changing. I don't think anyone has cracked the code, but I think NFTs play a story in one of the next big media companies that gets created. There's some sort of model there because what NFTs really do is they make you feel... I think anyone who's in media full-time really gets this. Really, the dream right, is that you have these diehard fans. And NFTs really help create that. They create that feeling of belonging to a community. And I'm going to be part of this club and I'm going to consume everything that comes out of this club. Or I'm going to go to these events and meet the other people that are in a club. And we actually did it during NFT NYC. The Permies, I guess a DAO formed and there's been like meetups of Permies independent of anything that we've done. When something like that works with no effort over the top, making it happen, you know that there's something magical there. I think you're onto something that your experimentation with it was really interesting. It was an example I'd cite to people that like, look, I have this NFT and then you have a pass or whatever it is to like future events. And it makes all the sense in the world that early adopters, to Jason's point about when in doubt, go niche. If you really own that niche community, those early adopters, they're then going to be evangelical about your brand. They're going to tell everyone to come and they're kind of where you're no marketing spend, but your marketing team. So I understand the media brand. And going niche, I understand events as like, it's got to work and you've got to kind of strike that balance between the highest quality content you can produce, but also not bankrupting the company to throw a lavish over the top party. The research and analytics platform, how is that shaping? Are those groups bringing those type of people in or not necessarily? 
the business model is basically like, let's look at any SaaS business in the last 15 years. They follow the same model, which is go raise a bunch of venture money and they go spend half of that on distribution and marketing and then maybe half on engineering and product. We have this nice setup right now where the media business spits off cash flow, which we can then use to reinvest in the product and engineering side. And then we don't have to go spend a boatload of money on marketing and distribution because we actually own the relationship with more than a million unique people read our news stories last month, for example. And one of our podcasts just hit 10 million total listeners over the last, I think, year, year and a half. So we own the relationship with millions of investors who allocate to crypto. If even 1% of those investors or even 0.1% of those investors gets pushed down the funnel far enough into the research platform, then we've got a colossal business. And I think that's really like what we've been doing for the last five years with sponsors and advertisers. So we've got companies like Coinbase and your alma mater, Fidelity Digital Assets, and all these big brands spend money with us to reach our audience. And now we're going to take a little bit of that knowledge that we've learned and use that audience to funnel into this research platform. So we think it's a nice model that we've set up. The only follow-up I was going to ask was, I'm curious how you two work as a team. You're obviously highly creative. You come up with ideas. And when you're sharing a very small bedroom, was this on your roadmap or did it evolve that you saw a problem and it wasn't meeting your needs and you felt like this needed to happen? It arose in the same way that pretty much everything at BlockWorks has come to be, which is there was a problem and we were shocked that no one else was doing it in the right way and we built it. There must be some like really smart founders out there who have a 10-year vision and they've mapped the whole vision out. That is not Mike and I, I would say. We basically just build things that we think that the crypto market and specifically our audience needs. And some examples of this might be like it started with events. There were all these kind of shady, scammy events where like we think that the institutional audience could benefit from some of these events. Like news was a good example of this, the news and editorial business. There were all these news companies in crypto like Cointelegraph and Coindesk and some other ones. And we just didn't think any of them were doing it that great. We thought it was six out of 10 news. And we're like, we think we can do this better. It might take many years, but we think we can do it better. And then same with research. Like there's a bunch of research and data platforms in crypto. We just thought no one was doing it at an excellent level. We just thought we could do it better. That's why it came about. I will say one of the sort of frustrations about these crypto assets is very few people look at them like businesses. And maybe it's because crypto sort of got its start as like magic internet money. And Bitcoin is trying to be a store of money, so you can't really apply a traditional financial lens to that. And now ETH might be money as well, more up for debate. But people don't approach these protocols as businesses. And when you really boil down most of these protocols, whether it's Uniswap or Lido or whatever, they're software marketplaces. And there is a supply side and a demand side, and you can analyze these things on the basis of generating revenue and costs. The trend that Jason and I are betting with and the problem that we're trying to solve is that you've been hearing this forever. I had four years of talking to my dad about trying to get him to buy some Bitcoin. He has so much trouble pulling the trigger because how do I value this thing? And for Bitcoin, that's always going to be a little bit more esoteric. But for a huge swath of crypto, you can do it. And our bet when we started the events and media companies that crypto was professionalizing. That doesn't have to be in like the bad way where like the fun part of crypto is gone. but on the media side of things, people wanted a media company that felt like it was speaking to them and that they could trust it. And now there's a more professional class of investor that's moving into crypto. And people don't want to hear like this narrative, man. 
What does the business look like? How can I compare Curve to something like Uniswap? What are the characteristics? What are the drivers? What does the financial profile look like? And that has not been built out for a whole bunch of good reasons, frankly, but we're taking a swing at that. I think you guys have done a great job. One thing that I've always noticed since I met Jason was, I don't know how to describe this. Your headlines are more adult-like. They're not written with sensationalism. And maybe this is the suit coming out of me. But if you're on crypto Twitter like we are, you're going to see some ridiculous nonsense all day long. And it's funny and I like it. And meme coin season happens or something. The ridiculousness that happens, I'm all for people experimenting and trying. But when it's not like grift or scam and that's like the news of the day, that's not great. That's a hard headline to hit the tape where that doesn't get to the top news of Bloomberg. There's a lot of stupid shit that happens in the corporate world every day. And Bloomberg doesn't blast it to the headline on everyone's terminal. Right. Yeah. Short-term game versus long-term game. I think we're playing a long-term game here. Looking back at the block work story, which I think is amazing. Two guys sharing queen beds in an apartment do $135 million valuation. I really need to stop sharing that story. We got to cut that story out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm blowing our own spots up here. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good one to share. You started in a bear market or in a bear market. The cliches of oh, it's good to build in a bear. I'd be curious how you guys think about from when you first started the feeling and then having a huge boom and bust and where we are today, how you look back at the lessons learned as builders through these phases. I mean, we started the company December of 2017. If you look at a chart, it was basically down only for about two and a half years there. So I think we're pretty comfortable building in a bear market. And I think one of the big differences for us was we got to profitability in like a month or two because we didn't know that there was another option out there. And I think a lot of companies that maybe raised money or started in the bull market, the money would always come later, I think. So I think that's when you see a lot of companies struggling. I don't know, Mike, what do you think for like lessons learned there? Someone gave us this advice. I actually blank on his name. Maurice. Maurice, early partner. And we were scheming in this little room. Both of us still had full-time jobs. And like Jason said, Coindesk was the 800-pound gorilla in the room. And like, how are we going to beat these guys? And you, you kind of think about all these strategies and we can zig while they zag. And he was just looking at this white and said, maybe you just need to survive. I really think of all the advice that we've been given over the years, that is the one that has played the most true to me. The thing, if you look at this last cycle was not without casualties. There were a lot of people that got carted out in body bags. And the common theme between everyone that got carted out is greed. And at big levels, be it 3AC or FTX, that's obvious. But I think it's played out in much subtler ways as well. So that could be a story of a VC fund getting infinite funding and raising a multi-billion dollar fund. And now you've got nothing to invest in. Or it could be a founder and you take this crazy high valuation with a whole ton of preferred equity that bites you in the ass when you need to do a down round during a bad period of time. Or it could be on the employee level, if you have jumped around to five different places in the last two years and have some nut salary that now that the labor market's rolling over, you're going to be the first one to get chopped. And it really is all about just having a long-term mindset and not getting too greedy and having this viewpoint that this industry grows so fast, just ride the wave and just try to create a little bit of value. One thing that we talk about internally to employees who maybe this is their first cycle is in a bull market, you can build something and the growth materializes sometimes in a day or a week. You can actually see the outcome of what you've done in a bear market. That can take a year. The difference between seeing that outcome in a week, just psychologically, instant gratification, very nice. 
bear market, it is extremely delayed gratification. And that can be very taxing, I think, mentally. But just understanding that as long as you have a long-term vision and understand that this will be fine, then I think it's healthy. You and I did this interview with this guy, Richard Crabe. Richard Crabe is the founder at Numerai. It was originally sort of a crypto play and there was a token. And from what I understand now, he's less involved in crypto or crypto isn't an element of it anymore. But he was selling his ETH and you and I interviewed him as to why that is. And he outlined this problem, which has influenced the way that I think about this stuff now, which is capital allocation mismatches lead to human capital allocation mismatches, which is, let's say it's a crazy environment. Every idea left, right and center is getting funded. And then two years later, half of those ideas die. What's happened? People have wasted their time. That's what's happened. All these people went to these startups that either were way too risky or running it way too hot, or the idea was fundamentally flawed, but the market was so distorted that it took a while for the reality to set in. And then a bunch of really great talent and people that were excited to work on an interesting project, they got looped into that. So during these bear periods, it is less fun. Like Jason said, it takes way longer. You're getting negative signal, like stuff that probably should be working just isn't working. You're banging your head against your desk being like, what am I doing wrong? But this is when that talent redisperses into better locations. Bear markets, they're not super fun, but there definitely are pluses to them as well. You mentioned Coindesk a couple of times of like in the early days having this dragon, how can we combat this big thing? But now you're a nine-figure company and going in a good direction. I'm curious, who do you admire or want to model after? Or who is like the next dragon that you're like, Blockworks, like this is who we're going against now? I've always thought about it in ways of like, how would someone describing a bunch of media companies, like where would they bucket us? And at the beginning, it was like, I really just wanted people to bucket us as a crypto media company. And that took a really long time. I was like, when someone mentions Coindesk and like the block and like decrypt, I just want to be in the conversation. And that took a very long time, honestly. Then the next bucket I would say is when someone mentions great media companies, like very strong, successful media companies, I would like to be mentioned with them. Politico, Axios, maybe media brands that not everyone in the US knows them, but like people who are kind of in the know know that they're very strong businesses and very influential. Politico, Axios, some of those things come to mind. And I think we're pretty close to that. The next bucket after that is being a powerhouse of a financial media platform. And that's when you are in the conversations with not just the media companies like the Bloombergs and the Wall Street Journals, but the data and information platforms like CapIQ and FactSet and Refinitiv and Bloomberg Terminal and things like that. Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. I would also just say our competitors like Coindesk is when we say slay the 800 pound grill, I hope they take that in the most flattering <laughs> way possible. Like, I honestly think they do just great work and their investigative journalism, especially around the FTX stuff. I mean, they've really stepped it up and they do just great work over there. We end these podcasts with the same question. And so I'm curious to get both of your takes. What are you most excited to build over the next six months? And what are you most excited to build over the next six years? I actually have an easier answer for the next six years. It's less of a, I mean, it is a product, but it's an idea that I think we want to be at the forefront of, which is the first 14 years of crypto have been super fun. And maybe Bitcoin is money. But what I want to do is I want to lead the charge of this next wave of investors where we start talking about these things like software marketplaces and business. And as a consumer of content, the first podcast I ever fell in love with was how I built this and invest like the best. And in finance, 
you get these breakdowns of a business, you know, which is like, what is the strategy of this? How do the economics work? All the questions that you're asking that we're talking about on this podcast, but for crypto protocols, you never get that. There's never a podcast on like, what are Arbitrum's like revenue drivers and what are the costs right now? And how are you going to cut costs? It's all like, oh yeah, it's like a roll-up and it's better than this roll-up because of XYZ ridiculous reason. I personally deeply care about changing the conversation there. So in the next six years, I hope Blockworks is at the head of putting common valuation frameworks and putting financials around these things because I think it can be done. And just driving the conversation forward, not just with the fundamentals and the financials, but on the media side and the podcast side. And I completely agree with Mike. There's going to be a narrative shift in the industry about just how the world talks about crypto. And I think we would like to lead that conversation forward. In the next six months, our research platform, I would say we have two out of three of the pieces of the puzzle solved. We have research, which we've had for a year now. We have governance, which we launched a month ago, this product called GovHub, which lets protocol investors, crypto investors track everything that's happening in the governance world. And then the third thing that we're launching is the data and analytics side of the platform. And then we're also really updating the UI UX of the platform. And once we have all of that, I can very confidently say it'll be the most powerful platform from a crypto information perspective. And I think we're almost there, but like once we have all of that, we will be there. And I'm excited about that. I'm excited to see it. Well, thank you guys for joining me today. This has been a lot of fun. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 